Well, we thank God for his goodness and also for your faithfulness. We welcome those of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting here at a Central Campus, along with others who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, um, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also in Bearspaw. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app to Romans chapter 2. Those of you who have been tracking along with this series may recall that in the first few chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul gives an extensive explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ or how we can have a personal relationship or friendship with God. And Paul basically says, before I tell you the good news, I need to tell you the bad news first. I need to inform you of what keeps us from having an authentic friendship with God. And that problem, in a nutshell, is sin. Sin at its core is pride. Or when we put ourselves at the center of the universe instead of God. And Paul spells out the problem in great detail in the first two chapters of Romans. He begins chapter 1 by describing those who reject God, those who try to fill that God-shaped hole in their soul with everyone or everything but God, including the worship and passionate pursuit of things like possessions or a position or power or pleasure. These people could be referred to as the rebellious. Rebellious people have a defiant spirit that says, I'm in charge and I'm going to do what I want to do. And over time, they become oblivious to the God-given moral code and conscience that's within them. And they begin to fall into selfish, immoral, and even wicked behavior. And sadly, by rejecting or replacing God, the rebellious have eliminated the only one who can fill that hole in their soul. Now, in chapter 2, we're introduced to two other groups of people who are feeling a bit smug and self-righteous. The one group could be called the respectable. When they hear Paul describe the rebellious chapter 1 people, they think, you know, that's, that's not me. I don't reject God. I, I, I don't hate God. Neither am I a, a wicked or an evil person. I'm a law-abiding, respectable person. Yes, our world is in the mess that it's in, because, but that, that's because of the abusers, the criminals, the murderers, the pimps and the perverts out there. But I'm not one of those. I mean, I'm an angel compared to them. Now, in addition to the respectable people, Paul points the spotlight on another group of people who could be called the religious. These religious people are thinking pretty much the same thing the respectable people are, only after hearing Paul describe the godless chapter one people, they look up to, toward heaven and they say, oh God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like them. Well, last time 
we looked at how the respectable can be deceived. Today in our study, we're going to examine Paul's teaching on how the religious can be deceived. And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in reading the first part of today's scripture. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and its instruction about life. And I ask, O oh God, that you would now help us to focus and to fully understand the words that we've just read together here in this passage. We also ask, O oh God, that you uh, would soften our hearts, that we would receive from you, and also that you would give us the courage to respond as you call us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, even though at first reading, this passage appears to be quite complicated, and it gets even a little bit more complicated as you read on, the Apostle Paul is simply alerting us to ways that we can put our trust in the wrong things. In particular, the religious aspects of our faith rather than in God. And he uses the Jewish faith to illustrate and explain it to us. First of all, he says, don't put your trust in your religious tradition or heritage. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, now you, if you call yourself a Jew... Paul observed that many Jews in his day had an unhealthy pride in their nationality and were attributing more to their Jewish heritage for their status with God than they should have. And perhaps the greatest reason for this is because they were God's chosen people. However, they didn't seem to realize that God chose them not because he favored them or because they were more righteous than other people groups. No, Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 tells us that God chose them for a purpose. He chose them to fulfill a purpose and that was to be the channel through which all people of the world at that time would, would be directed toward him, would come to know and to trust him. In the same way that we, the church, the new Israel, have now been chosen for a purpose. And that is to be Christ's representatives in the world today. Unfortunately, over time, the Jewish people lost sight of God's call on their lives as a people. 
They lost their passion to be the light that God called them to be and to share the truths that he had entrusted to them to share with the rest of the world. Do you remember how Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites about their need to repent and turn to the one true God? Now, he didn't want to do that because he couldn't stand the thought that they would actually repent and change and escape judgment. He had no love or compassion in his heart for these people. He actually wanted them to pay for their hedonism. Well, this attitude was pretty typical of the Jews of that day. They had no interest in pointing people to the true God. Instead of viewing the divine truths and blessings that God had given to them as a sacred trust, they focused only on themselves, actually believing that regardless of where their heart was at or how they lived, just being a Jew was their guaranteed passport to heaven. Now, church, we're not immune from falling into this way of thinking. Ask someone, are you a Christian? And most Canadians will say, well, of course I am. I'm Catholic or I'm Anglican. I'm a member of the United Church or I'm a member of Second Baptist Church. Some will even appeal to the salvation by osmosis and say, of course I'm a Christian. My grandparents were missionaries or our entire family has been involved in such and such a church for decades. Now let me be clear, it is important that we gather regularly as God's family to worship him, to hear teaching from his word, to be in community with one another, even though doing so during COVID has been a real challenge, has it not? And has required us to be patient and at times to meet in less than ideal conditions. But having said that, only attending church whether in person or online, will make you a Christian about as much as going to a hockey game will make you a hockey player. The reality is when we stand before Almighty God, we will stand alone. And we will be judged on the basis of the state of our heart. We won't be able to appeal to how biblical or how Christ-glorifying the church that we're a member of is nor will we be able to appeal to the righteousness of our parents or grandparents or heritage. That's the first danger that Paul warns us about. Don't trust in your religious tradition to get you to heaven. Secondly, don't put your trust in your religious knowledge. Look at verse 17 again. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and boast in God. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now when Paul talks about the law here, He's referring to what we now know to be the Old Testament scriptures. And what he's saying in this very long sentence is that many Jews of that day 
believed that as long as they were reading and studying the scriptures, as long as they knew what God's will was, as long as they were teaching their children and others the scriptures, they were in good standing with God. Now again, all of this is fine and good in itself. Paul's concern was that the focus of their faith wasn't complete. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. They knew the law, but their hearts hadn't been changed. The same concern can be true today. For example, we know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Many Christians can recite this verse. The question is, over the last 20 months of COVID, to what extent has the fruit of the Spirit been evident in our lives? To what degree have we been loving? Have we been joyful? Have we been peaceful within? Have we been patient? Have we been kind and gentle? How often have we had a defiant, no one's going to tell me what to do attitude? How often have we insisted on doing it our way rather than the way of Jesus? How often have we lost it, created hurt and division over matters that would be considered minor irritations in other parts of the world where Christians and their families face the prospect of losing their life each and every day? Paul essentially says it's not enough just to know the scriptures or to teach the scriptures. A true believer is changed by those scriptures and lives out those biblical truths in their lives. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul turns to the religious Jews of his day, even as he does to us today. And he says, you're great at saying and teaching the right things. But are you backing up your words with your life? Are you listening to and following your own teaching? Yes, it's true. You are the chosen people of God. And you have the law of God. But are you living as the people of God? How close does your walk resemble your talk? Isaiah verbalized God's concern this way. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So let's use the examples that Paul gives here in verse 21 and 22 to examine whether there's hypocrisy in our life. Do we shake, for example, our heads in disgust at the person who is caught stealing significant funds from their company? but dismiss the fact that we steal time on a regular basis from the company we work for? 
Do we judge, slander, and express disgust over the person who had a moral failure, but dismiss the fact that we view porn or regularly seek out racy movies and television shows or magazines or often treat our spouse like a kitchen appliance? Do we express disgust toward the idolatry of those who use their resources to live opulent and extravagant lifestyles, resources which could be given to the cause of Christ and the needy, but dismiss the fact that even though we have far fewer resources, we give very little or nothing at all to the cause of Christ and to the needy ourselves. I may know a lot about the Bible, the God of the Bible, but do I know God personally as a friend? How has reading and studying the Bible changed my heart? How has it changed my attitudes? How has it changed my values? How has it changed my life? When I hear the weekly sermon from my church, am I honestly asking the Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you calling me to do about it? And then following through on what I hear God saying? Or do I deflect what I hear God saying by focusing on what I don't like about the worship service, like the worship set or the length of the service? Am I reading and studying scripture primarily to gain more knowledge just for knowledge's sake? So that I can show others how much I know or win a theological argument? You see, church, Paul's concern for us is that we have a living faith, not a dead faith. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, A living faith is a faith that sees the Bible as living and active. When we read it, when we study it, we hear it taught, we are changed by it. The focus isn't on others or solely satisfying our curiosity for more knowledge. No, the focus is on ourselves alone. And at times, we're going to find ourselves comforted and encouraged, even overjoyed by the promises of God's Word. And at other times, we're going to find ourselves convicted and humbled by the precepts of God. Those who have a living faith do not put their trust in some past experience. They don't put their trust in, in their spiritual accomplishments and sacrifices. No, those who have a living faith put their trust in the living Christ and Christ alone and in knowing him more and walking with him more closely each day. People with a living faith do not compare themselves with others. They do not judge or look down on others. They're not cold or condemning toward those who are struggling in their faith. They treat them with the gentleness of Christ. They do not slander others, but seek always to lift up and encourage others in the faith. In verse 23 and 24, Paul says, if there's little or no resemblance between what, you, what we say and the way we live and treat one another as Christians. If there's no difference between Christ's followers 
and the people of our culture in the way that we deal with adversity and deal with hardship and uncertainty, like COVID, for example. Our hypocrisy, says Paul, blasphemes God's name to those who are far from him. We hurt the cause of Christ and we turn off those who are outside of the church when we don't live what we say we believe. Years ago, Pastor Erwin Lutzer, he quoted a Chicago news reporter who said, you know, the only thing we really love to cover when it comes to religion is a scandal. We love the scandals. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why it is that our world loves giving a lot of attention to the hypocrisy of Christians? Well, because when they hear that a Christian's been living a lie, they feel better about the sin in their own life and the way that they're living. And they also feel justified to keep ignoring God. A while back, I read that Gandhi had actually studied the claims of Christ and came very close to becoming a Christian. But he ultimately rejected Christianity because of the hypocrisy observed in Christians' lives. Now, that's truly unfortunate and should serve to remind us how important it is to live out our faith consistently. But having said that, I would also say it is true that Gandhi rejected Christianity, if Gandhi rejected Christianity for that reason, then despite the wonderful things he did, he was a foolish man. Because people will often let you down. They will often be a poor reflection of the living Christ, including those of us who are pastors and Christian leaders. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I do not always practice what I preach. I do not always represent Christ well in my life. All that to say, don't stake your eternity on what other people do or don't do, even spiritual leaders you look up to because it's possible, very possible, they're going to disappoint you one day. No, you stake your eternity on the eternal one, Jesus Christ. You stay focused on him. Now, I say all of that not to make any of us as Christ followers think that eh, it's okay to live a life of hypocrisy, but to remind us that even if we live an active faith, even if we practice what we preach, there will always be those who accuse us of hypocrisy. And so our focus should not be on others. It shouldn't be on what others think of us, but on Christ. Surrendering to him daily, following him with all of our heart, and trusting him to reveal his truth and his character through us. And so says Paul, be careful not to put your trust in religious tradition or to put your trust in religious knowledge. And then finally he says, do not put your trust in religious rituals or symbols. Paul now turns to the most sacred badge of the Jew, circumcision. Now before I explain Paul's teaching here, I want to emphasize that circumcision was God's idea. You got that? 
I mean, speaking as a man, I can tell you it's not an idea that we men would have come up with. All right? Just want you to be clear about that. It was God's idea. But seriously, God intended circumcision to be a sign of his covenant with Abraham and his offspring, a symbol that they were God's people. And yet over time, the Jewish people began to see circumcision as a sort of magical ceremony, that it was their guaranteed passport to heaven. In our day, people put their trust in baptism or the Lord's Supper and or church membership. And yet it's critical that we understand what Paul says in verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Well, what Paul's saying here is circumcision means nothing if you are not living out your faith. Now, that would have rocked the religious Jews of his day to the core because they believed circumcision was their ticket to heaven. In fact, Rabbi Menachem wrote, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. And yet look what Paul writes in verse 28. A person is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul says, if the outward symbol, which in this case is circumcision, doesn't reflect true faith in the heart, then it doesn't mean anything. You see, when it comes to our relationship with God, God looks at the heart. God intended circumcision to be a sign, a seal of the righteousness a person receives from God by placing their faith in God. It symbolized a person's commitment to God in the same way that baptism symbolizes the Christian's commitment to God today. Or a wedding ring symbolizes a person's commitment to their spouse. In fact, I have such a symbol on my left hand. And though this ring is not elaborate, it's priceless because it's a symbol of the love that my wife and I share of the commitment we have to one another. Now, if I lost this ring, you know, I'd be very disappointed, but our marriage would continue. At least I hope it would continue, right, dear? You see, the ring is a symbol, nothing more. Apart from the love and the commitment that we have for each other, the ring on my finger means nothing. The same is true for baptism, adult baptism, infant baptism, communion or church membership or any other symbol or ritual that you may be inclined to put your trust in for eternal life. 
Now make no mistake, symbols and rituals are important and they're very meaningful. They can encourage our faith. Some of them, like communion and baptism, illustrate salvation. They illustrate the cross of Christ. They symbolize salvation, but please note this, they do not impart salvation or righteousness. Max Lucado says, what kind of God would look at the religious hypocrite and say, you've never loved me, you've never sought me or obeyed me, but because your name is on the membership role of your church, and that church just happens to be part of the right denomination, I will save you. Anyone who believes that isn't reading the same Bible that I am and is missing what Paul is teaching here in Romans. In the same way, what kind of God would look at a sincere Christ follower and say, you dedicated your life to loving me and to loving others. You surrendered your heart to me and you confessed your sins. I want to save you badly, but I'm so sorry your church didn't take communion every week or failed to refer to the communion elements as the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ. So because of this, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to spend eternity separated from me in hell. Church, we read in Titus that God saves us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God saves us not because we trust in a symbol or a ritual, but because we trust in the living Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Look again at verse 28 and 29. Paul says, nothing external makes you a true believer. It's what's happening inside of you, in your heart, that counts in the eyes of God. And so to summarize, Paul's concern in Romans 2 is that we not substitute a real and growing friendship with Jesus with religious works and activities, thinking that this will please him and assure us of eternal life in heaven. But it won't. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice that Jesus clearly states here that even though Christ's followers do what the Lord calls them to do, it is knowing him it is a friendship with him that determines whether or not we spend eternity with him in heaven. You see, church, God didn't create us because he was lonely or because he was bored or because he needed help to take care of the planet. 
Not at all. Before we were created, God the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed a depth of love and community that surpasses anything that we can imagine. Father, Son, and Spirit didn't need to create us. They wanted to create us. They wanted us to experience the love and community they were experiencing with each other. God created us in his image, which among other things means he gave us the freedom to make choices, including the freedom to love him or to reject him. God didn't want androids or robots who dutifully and perfectly do what he wants them to do. No, God wanted lovers who freely love him and choose to know him and trust him and follow him. And friends, we are deceived if our trust, if our hope, if our worship is in anything or anyone else. I'm going to close with an illustration that beautifully explains how God intended faith and works to function together. Imagine a woman who is married to a man named Law. They have young children, and she works in the home. Her husband, Law, was a good man in his own way. But he didn't understand the needs of his wife. Law came home every evening and asked, how was your day? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything on the list? The wife really wanted to please her husband, Law. But there were so many demands and expectations, and even though she tried her best, it was never enough. She could never satisfy Law. She failed again and again, and Law repeatedly pointed out her failures. It was a miserable marriage because she never felt accepted and always felt like a failure. Worst of all, she couldn't even argue with Law because he was always right. Sadly, Law's remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. Try harder tomorrow. But over time, she just became resentful of law. Gave up trying to please him because she couldn't. I'm just going to hit pause there for a moment and say, friends, that is a description of every religion on this planet outside of Christianity. But then one day, the story continues. Something happened that would change her life forever. Her husband-in-law died, and she fell in love and married a man named Grace. Grace was so different from law. In fact, she could hardly believe it was possible for a marriage to be so good. When Grace came home in the evening, sometimes the house was a total mess. The children were out of control. Dinner was burning on the stove. And she accomplished hardly anything at all. But instead of chastising her, Grace swept her up into his arms and said, I love you so much. I chose you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. At first, she had a hard time understanding such love and not being despised, rejected, and humiliated by her husband. Whether she had a good day or a bad day, 
Regardless if she dropped the ball or not, each time without fail, Grace treated her kindly and with love. And over time, she began to be transformed deep down inside in a very good way. She felt so loved and accepted, she wanted to love her husband back in the same way. She wanted to do the things that pleased him, not because she had to, because she loved him and she wanted to please him. You see, church, what Jesus is saying to each of us in Matthew 7 and through Paul here in Romans 2, doing good works matters. It really does. But be careful in assuming that just checking off a list of religious duties and requirements and then just going on your merry way and living however you want, oblivious to God in a relationship with him, will somehow please the Lord and give you a pass to heaven. In Matthew 7, Jesus essentially says, if you believe that, you're mistaken. Knowing me is what matters. Jesus looks each of us in the eye and he says, please understand, I love you. I died for you. You mean the world to me. I wanted to have, I want to have a heart level friendship with you, to walk and talk with you all day long, to empower you to represent me and to impact the lives of others. He's saying, I, I don't want you filled with paralyzing fear and doubt. No, I want you to know me well enough that you can trust me with your life and with your eternity and the direction I give you in this life. You can trust me. And church, you see, this is Jesus' heart. This is what Jesus wants for us. But here's the thing. We will only receive and experience all that Jesus has for us to the degree that he has all of us, to the degree that we're all in with him. I mean, think of it this way. Would you want to be in marriage, in a marriage with someone who's only partially committed to you, only partially committed to your marriage? who's essentially your roommate and takes out the garbage and, you know, does all the duties, completes the lists, but isn't your friend? Of course not. And we understand that. And yet, why would we think that our Lord, in whose image we are made, would want anything less than for us to be all in with him? Jesus doesn't offer us a list of rules to keep or deeds to fulfill. He offers us a friendship with himself and he invites us to trust him and to step out and to taste and see that he is good. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. In our study up to this point, Paul's introduced us to three people who are deceived, who are the object of God's wrath. The rebellious person, the respectable person, the religious person.
He desperately wants us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith or whether we're trusting in the wrong things. Because the trajectory of our eternity is at stake. And over the last 20 months during this COVID season, I, I've been increasingly concerned about the state of people's hearts. So let me ask those of you who are Christians here, is Jesus still the Lord of your life? Are you trusting him or are you taking matters increasingly into your own hands? Is your heart still humble, soft and open to the Spirit's direction or has a defiant, stubborn spirit taken control? Are you earnestly seeking after Jesus and to living the way of Jesus or are you increasingly going your own way? Take a moment now and ask yourself, Lord, what are you saying to me today? And what do you want me to do about that? Others of you perhaps have been struggling with doubts about whether you're really a Christ follower. You know, you know a lot about Jesus, but you've never really given your life to him. You really don't even know what it means to be a Christian because you've never been all in. Talk to him right now. He, he knows what you're thinking. Confess your sins, your regrets. Invite him to invade your life and to lead and guide you from this day forward. Would you please stand? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and the warning these past few weeks about trusting in the wrong things. And Lord, I pray that no one here will follow the way of the rebellious person, the way of the respectable person, or the way of the religious person. They will not fall into those ditches, Lord. Instead, Lord, I pray everyone here will entrust their lives to you and worship, serve, and follow you with all of their heart, not out of fear or a sense of duty, but in response to the incredible love, acceptance, grace, and forgiveness that you have and that you continue to extend to us. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name.
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.